I, I don't think we understand the nature of discipleship and how it's changing and that, that stat of you need five other adults in your students' lives besides you guys as parents um, really to have the best chance of them walking toward Christ in the future. Uh, last weekend, Deanna and I were off and we ended up going with our daughter was here and we ended up driving over to Fargo and spending the night there and then we, Deanna and I had lunch with a couple that we know and it was, uh, their names were Holly and Lee Wolfelstead. They were at the Lakewood Church years ago. But Holly was instrumental in my daughter's life. Um, I can't say enough things about it. And I actually thanked her even on Sunday uh, just for her relationship with my daughter. She actually was my daughter's maid of honor. But she was the person that discipled my daughter and made a profound um, changes and just just helped her spiritually in her life uh, over the years. So I would challenge you to step up and serve in, in ministry and look at investing in people's lives. That needs to become the norm more and more as well. But I was with our daughter last week and the weekend, and she was here for a quick visit so there was lots of reconnecting for us and lots of conversations and even going through some boxes that were still stored at our house. My question is, how long do you have to store your kids' boxes at, at your home, uh, their keepsakes, um, forever? Yeah, I, I think that's the case for us. Uh, we did get to throw out a couple things that she didn't want now and wanted before. Um, but we were thankful for the time that, that we were able to spend with our family. And one of the fun things about it is that there's just no drama that for us that we had to go through. Now, if we gather on Deanna's side, there's always drama. I got I to gotta tell you that one uh, in that. But we came back to Grand Rapids. And then you turn on the TV and you're getting ready for the big, convention and the drama that goes with the politics. And I don't know if anybody likes that kind of the political drama that's out there. Uh, but, I, I'm, you know, you watch it and it is what it is. But for you that don't like drama in settings, I, I will say this. You wouldn't have been one that would wanted to have followed Jesus around from chapter 11 through the end of the book in Mark. This is the most intense week in the life of Jesus. It was intensity beyond belief. And today we jump into another story where there's more drama going on. And, and what I want to do to begin with, I'm just going to read through the section that we're covering today. I'm going to make some comments, and then we're going to apply it at the end. But if you want to look at just Mark, Mark chapter 11, if you're new, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 11 and 12 here today. 11 verse 27, and they came to Jerusalem. Now, this would have been Wednesday of Passion Week. Remember, Jesus comes in on Sunday with the triumphal entry. He's riding a donkey, and the next day, or some people think it was Tuesday, but he goes into the temple, and he cleans it out. He drives out the money changers, the people that are selling the sacrifices there, and he made a mess of that temple during that day. And now, on Wednesday, he comes back to the temple again. And let's keep going. And as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So they come and meet him. And this was no accidental meeting. They run up to him right away. And I think this, they were not too happy that Jesus showed up again in the temple. They, would wanted, he, they were hoping that he would stay away. 
but they go out of their way to engage him. And I imagine there was some angst that they were feeling as they, he, they see Jesus coming into this place. Keep going. And as he was walking, uh, they come up to him. And then verse 28, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Meaning even casting out the money changers. Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now remember, the, the leaders that are confronting him here, they're in charge. They're the ones that control the, the, the temple and the courts and what's going on in that, in that temple. But they believed that Jesus had, had dished him, that, that, that they had understood that he had kind of grabbed their power. And, and so understand, they ask, can I ask this question, what authority, what credentials do you have, what degrees do you have that you can come in and take over control of the temple? See, I think below, again, their authority was being challenged. They were losing a grip on their authority, and they didn't like it. You almost wonder if they're thinking, does this, thing, this, this guy think he's the Messiah or what? And a little pun there, but you didn't get it, but that's all right. Um, he had a Messiah complex. But then Jesus answers with a question. And I don't know if you like it when people ask questions when you ask a question, but look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one more question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. He cuts off the conversation and says this, until you answer me, I'm not going to answer you. And look, look at verse 31, and then they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But what shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. They took the easy way out. But that question backed them into a corner. But you also got to recognize, you realize that the crowd was still influencing the leaders. Crowds have an enormous ability to put pressure on a few people, don't they? Now understand here that they did not believe that, that John the Baptist was from God. They would have denied that if they would have been honest. They just couldn't admit it. They really didn't have the courage or the guts to actually say that because they were afraid of the people. But either answer, they would lose the debate. But look at the reply of Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he responds, If you don't have the answer, you don't even deserve a response from me. Now here's, now this is the end of the chapter here. And, and one of the challenges is that um, a chapter break seems to uh, imply a different time period. There really shouldn't have been a chapter break here. If you look at Matthew, for example, this, this interaction here, there's no break there. So, so right away in, ch in, in chapter 12, this is the same incident, okay? This is what's going on. But understand what he does here. He jumps in and he tells them a parable. A parable is, is a short story, oftentimes exaggerated, really to hone in on one particular point. And, and we usually, oftentimes, the parables, the, the main point, you discover it at the end of the parable. 
that which is the case here. But look at it, 12 verse 1. And then he began to speak to them in parables. And there was others that he had mentioned, he had taught them as well here. But on this one, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and went into another country. Now, this was actually common back then. If somebody owned lots of land, they would have people come and live on the land, grow the crops, grow the fruit, or the, or the, the grapes and, and the wine, and, and they would have them run that farm, and then the owner who might live a distance away would just come regularly and take part of the produce or the money that was earned from them. And as you kind of look at that, it's an illustration of some capitalism that's going on even back then. But look at verse 2 here. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants, he's continuing in this parable, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now you notice there's an exaggeration here because if it was a literal story, I think we would look at the landowner and go this, why do you keep sending these guys to this, these tenants? Isn't it foolish to keep sending these men? Well, under, that's the parable. It's, it's an exaggeration to get to a point. Uh, now i got to say one thing as well just to interject here. Um, be careful when you look at parables and when you read them and try to interpret them because we don't interpret a parable the same way that we do an epistle. The whole idea in Bible interpretation, you've got to understand the, the word genre, the different types of literature that we actually have in this book. You, you understand there's history and there's poetry, there's letters, there's proverbs, all different kinds of genres of literature, and all of them actually are interpreted differently in light of their genre. So you've got to be careful at times in that, in terms of finding the meaning in that. But look at the rest, next piece to the story. He, meaning the landowner, verse 6, had still one another, a beloved son, and finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now here's again, I, I think we see this, this parable, there's some real correlations of what this means, and I just want to, if you're following along in the outline, let me just fill those blanks in for you. Obviously the landowner here represents God, okay? I, I think most of these are really obvious. The second one, the vineyard, is God's kingdom. So he's talking about the, the referencing then, this story goes with the kingdom of God. The tenants are those religious leaders specifically that they're ta he's talking to, but I think we can apply that it's anyone as, that rejects him as well. And the servants were God's prophets, specifically the Old Testament, but you could actually add in John the Baptist as well there. And the beloved son, obviously, is Jesus Christ here in this parable. See, but the landowner sends his servants. They beat them. They kill them. 
and, and you keep wondering, well, why did the landowner keep sending somebody, but the landowner in the parable decides to send his son, and maybe, you know what, he's going to get respect because it's going to be the son, but the son comes, and they kill him, and they throw him out in the field, and you, even there you recognize they didn't even give the son a proper burial in the story. So Jesus ends this parable with a question as it digs into the meaning of it. And look how it draws these these religious leaders in in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Now here's where I've got to clarify something in verse 9. That's not Jesus talking there, okay? Because he, look at Matthew 21, 41. Same story here. And they, they, meaning this is religious rulers, said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Do you see how Jesus has drawn them into the story and they respond with this idea of they've gotten into it and said, those tenants, they're evil people, they're gonna, they deserve a wretched death. They're going, yeah, Jesus, we get it. And all of a sudden, Jesus holds up a bit of a mirror. Look at the next verse in verse 10. And he responds to them, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And for those religious leaders, can you say, oops, they had been pranked. Maybe a better way to say they had been punked in, in this story. Look at the response in verse 12. All of a sudden, the light bulbs came on for these guys. And in verse 12 again, and they were seeking to arrest him. And Matthew, is stronger. They were going now to figure out how they're going to kill Jesus. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told that they had perceived it. The people even perceived it, so the crowd got it that he had told them the parable against them, so they left and went away. Now, this is a parable that shows the irrational thinking of the tenants, but as it's applied to those men that were confronting Jesus. Now, as I got to this point, I'll have to be honest with you, I was kind of struggling. How do you apply this to 2016? You go, what's our application here? Well, let me jump into some things where I think this does apply to us. Again, if you're following notes, here's my first application observation. Just like back then, we live in a broken world where truth, reason, and logic do not matter. This group of men that Jesus was confronting, the real truth was blocked from them. And it was far more irrational than reasonable. Their hatred blinded them to the truth. Sin blinds people from the truth. And I think there's an issue that oftentimes we want to ignore in the church and, and as we apply it to the culture, we want to ignore a theological issue and it's the issue of depravity. 
See, we need to understand here the issue of depravity, and it's revealed in these religious leaders. It impacted their world, and it impacts our world as well. And and let me just throw you an example. The irrationalness of saying that a baby that's in the womb is not a life and doesn't need to be protected. You go, that's not even reasonable. When you stop and think of how, what's the age where a beating heart begins to take place in a mom's womb? Irrational. But why do people send, continue to say, we got to have our rights? It's not irrational. See, but we live in a broken world where people assume that everybody should come to a place where we all agree what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is just. Do we realize that there's, even in politics, there's really two sides where everybody's trying to say, we, believe, we know what's right, and the other side is going, we know what's right. We live in a broken world where we assume that we can come to that place where everybody agrees. And and people are surprised when it doesn't happen. Folks, that speaks to depravity. Uh, On Fox News Channel, on the Kelly File, about a week ago, I don't know if you caught this, you got to listen to it. It, it She had an interview for an hour discussion on the issue of racism. And that sin, it's a deep sin in our culture. And it still happens today in a lot of different ways and places. But there was 30, 40 people in this room that she had sitting, and the majority were African-American. And the understanding is you listen to that, there was actually no consensus as to what racism is or to the solution even of racism. And it's to the nature of the problem. Matter of fact, there were a couple black pastors there that were in that group. And one of them got close to beginning to go down the path of depravity, and he didn't. But the issue of what do we do with sin? How do we decide? Understand what depravity functionally means. It means that every child is born into the world with a disposition that wants autonomy, self-rule, ruled by self-love. Depravity says that from infancy, a person wants the right to define what is good and what is evil. Going all the way back to the garden, deciding you can be like God. So depravity means we live in a fallen world where there's this overarching desire for self-rule, claiming the right to be like God, claiming the right to determine without God what is good And what is evil? This theological issue of depravity, folks, is rooted in the spiritual leaders even of that day. And it's still with us today. And it pushes the world toward away away from biblical reasoning. See, because we live in a fallen world, there's no agreed-upon standard of righteousness without God's revelation. 
of what is right and what is wrong, what is just. It will always result in an attitude that's reflected even of one verse. I've had this up on the screen before. Judges 21-25. Look what it reads. In those days there was no king of Israel. But look at this statement. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It was back for those men that were wanting to persecute Jesus, get Jesus, and it's still with us today. But realize this. There is a transcendent truth that comes from our Creator, not from the created. Now think with me. How did these men... They're plotting to get rid of Jesus here. Why did they come to a place where they believed it was okay for them to kill Jesus? They threw reason out the window. They threw the truth and the scriptures out of the window because somehow they justified in their hearts that they could kill this man and violate thou shalt not murder in the great commandments. The Ten Commandments. See, in a world, in a broken world in which we live, where it's filled with people that are consumed with their depravity, we we must understand that real hope and truth, where it's actually found. See, if we think that we can call people to live godly standards and of righteousness without the Holy Spirit, we are actually fooling ourselves. If we think that we can elect the right politician, well, that will somehow make this nation a holy nation. If you believe that, you are delusional and not reasonable. You're not theologically sound. There is no politician that can deal with depravity. We are born into it. It was true back then, it's true today. And the only way things will change permanently if there's new hearts put within people. And God has the ability and the power to give people new hearts. See, these religious leaders, they had the passages memorized of the prophecies of a Messiah coming. They knew what was taught, but they wouldn't put the dots together and see that the Messiah was standing right in front of them. Matter of fact, I I think if Jesus came back today, there would be a whole bunch of people who acknowledge a historical Jesus, and they wouldn't still get the dots, and they wouldn't recognize who he was today. But let me go after another application here as a result of the depravity. The second one for your notes, we must embrace the power and the necessity of the gospel. Do you realize that the response to Jesus, that he was going to be the chief cornerstone, that he was going to be rejected, fundamentally that is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The owner of the land who had to send his son, that was the starting point of dealing with depravity, dealing with our sinfulness. And that son had to be rejected in order for the gospel to become effective and powerful. 
And let me call you back to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Look how it reads. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do we believe and live this? That unless the gospel goes out into the world, people's hearts cannot change. People have to respond to the gospel. But we keep, and this is where it frustrates me, in politics, we just think that education is going to change and make us more righteous. Or if we just get people jobs, that it's going to change and make people more righteous. And I go, no. The gospel has to change people. People keep believing that we can make rules to make people get along. And you go, it just doesn't work. Because men and women without Christ are always stuck in their own autonomy, their own self-love. They serve their own interests first. People are stuck into believing that one can become righteous even by doing righteous deeds. And you go, that's just theologically, biblically wrong. Let me just even apply this to marriage for a second. You know, you can read books on marriage, and you can learn about marriage, and you can even write a thesis on marriage and know how it's supposed to work. But catch this, if there's no capacity to love, no capacity to give grace, no capacity to forgive, no capacity to keep record of wrongs, a marriage is still going to be in trouble. The capacity is about the power to actually love and forgive and not keep record of wrongs. See, even there, the gospel is necessary. The Holy Spirit has to come into our lives and we submit to him and he gives us the power to become righteous even in a marriage. But the gospel is necessary. And loving people without helping them know Jesus, without helping them know that he is the Savior of the world, they're still going to be trapped in their autonomy, in their depravity. And one of the things I think we need to do is we need to pray that people, eyes would be, the scales would be taken off, and they would see their own sin, their own depravity. If people never see that they're in need of a Savior, Why do they need one if they don't need it? See, we must let the world know that Jesus died so reconciliation with a loving Father can take place. We need to let them know that he died and he sent the Holy Spirit so that we could have the power to know the truth, to believe the truth, to use the truth, and that he's given it through this to us to reveal himself to us. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, folks, is revealed in this book to us. One more application here. For your notes, I said it this way. This story calls us to be certain, though, with the question, who is Jesus? Matter of fact, the whole book of Mark really calls this question of who is Jesus. Even the wind and the seas obey him the title of our series. But starting in chapter 11, this whole week pushes the question, who is Jesus? 
And it's of utmost importance for us. You know what? If you're in middle school here today, I would say this. Is Jesus, ask you this question, is Jesus important in your life? Does Jesus matter to you? If you're in high school, is Jesus important to you in your life? Or is he only important because mom and dad said he needs to be important? And that question has to get answered, actually, whether you're a college person, single, married, whether you're 70 or 80 years old. Who is Jesus to you? Is he one only just for fire insurance? Is that the extent of how we view Jesus? Or or maybe he's your therapist, where you visit him when you feel bad and are in trouble, and that's when you think you need him. See the question even in earlier in our text today, by what authority do we acknowledge that Jesus has authority over our lives? And going farther, do we believe that Jesus actually loves us so much that he died for you and me? Do you believe that he invites you to love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your will and your strength? Do you believe that he wants to walk with you every day, working in your life to transform you so that you would be on mission for him in this world and revealing the Father, Son, and the Spirit to this world? Mark is an interesting book. It's about Jesus. And I understand this is Holy Week in the life of Jesus. And so much is revealed. I'm out of time, but I'm going to quickly just give you just a couple other pieces. They're not on your notes. But when I think of the parable, as I was looking through a little bit later in the week, and I realized there's some things about the parable, and let me just give you those. Uh, The first one is this parable tells us also about the generosity of God. Do you realize how generous he was, even in this parable where the the landowner was allowing these tenants, they had everything they needed to live, and and that's true in our world today. God is still generous to our world today, and he gives man the opportunity to work and to earn a living and an opportunity to respond to him. But this story also tells us of the patience of God. Realize not once, not twice, that many times that here the, the, the owner gave the tenants chance after chance and the patience beyond what they deserved. But I think this parable also tells us of the ultimate justice of God because in that they took advantage of the patience of God. And in the end, judgment came and it will come even against our world today. There's a time in the end where God will act and he will be just. But it also tells us that Jesus regarded himself not as a servant, but as the son of God. Understand, this was a direct point and they knew it. It's why it made made them so angry. Again, he goes, guys, I'm the Messiah. In this story, he reveals again, I'm the Messiah. And they weren't happy. And the last one maybe for us today, it's this. He tells us that the cross was no surprise. The cross where death occurred, that gives us the opportunities for salvation. 
It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Jesus went there willingly. Think of the parable. The the father sends the son. The son knew these guys were getting killed in that story. And he goes willingly knowing that he was going to get killed by the tenants. See, Jesus had a commitment to the cross. And the story reminds us even of that today. Of bowing before God. So the question today as I end today, who's Jesus to you today? Is he important? Do you know how much that he died, the, the, the energy, the work, the, the will, everything that went into this cross that this whole week is pointing toward, that he loves you profoundly? Do you know that and do we celebrate that? I would ask this week, Ponder some of that, maybe that last question. Who is Jesus to you this week? What does he mean in your life? And how does he want you to respond to him? Let's stand and pray.